You're listening to Spice Radio, 1200 AM's The Morning Buzz, and we are speaking to Charlie Smith, the editor of Vancouver. Charlie, how are you, and Happy New Year. Oh, Happy New Year to you, too, man, Karen, and, and same to Natasha. Uh, I'm doing well, and I hope all's well at Spice Radio. All is well, Charlie, and of course, with the new year being here now, all of us are wondering, you know, what do you think might be some of the biggest stories that we should be paying attention to in this new year? Well, I think the the obvious one is Donald Trump, um, with 91 criminal indictments uh, and him being the front runner. We're going to see on Monday how he'll do in the Iowa caucuses, which is the first test of the presidential season. Um, the other thing that I'm I'm watching though is on the Democratic side, Joe Biden's not doing that well in the polls right now. Um, it, he's going to run, and and he may do well because in the election because issues like abortion and also the, he's not Trump. But at the same time, if he starts to flag uh, and and have some difficulties, it's been very interesting watching Gavin Newsom, who's the 56 year old governor of California, who insists he's not running for president. He's a Democrat, mm. but he's doing these things where he's becoming a national political figure. And and the one example was when he held a debate with Ron DeSantis, the, the Florida governor who's running against Trump for the Republican nomination. So it's there's nothing happening on that front yet. But in 1980, when, when Jimmy Carter was the incumbent president, and he was not doing so well in the polls after the Iran hostage crisis, um, that uh, Ted Kennedy, who was a senator, decided to challenge him for the nomination. I don't think Newsom's going to do it at this point, but we have seen incumbent Democratic presidents run into trouble in the past. And and back in 1968, Lyndon Baines Johnson, for instance, everyone thought he would be the nominee, but then others emerged to run against him, and then he decided eventually he wasn't going to seek re-election. I, I think Biden's a fighter. I don't think he's going to do this. But if the numbers are really bad and it, and Biden's candidacy could be seen as uh, paving the way for a Trump election, it'll be very interesting to see what happens within the Democratic Party. It will be, because, like, will we potentially see a new president or not? I'm also, Charlie, reading a lot of things about particularly young Americans when I go on social media, how a lot of them aren't really too pleased with Biden and his administration, particularly with the approach of what's going on between um, the Israel and Hamas situation. Of course, there's a lot of divides there. So one has to wonder, you know, is this something that is going to hurt the Democrats or not, right? Yeah, and, and this attack by Hamas and then Israel's reaction to it, has really put uh, some Western leaders in difficult positions, and Biden particularly, but also Justin Trudeau. Another thing to watch this year, too, is, is BC election um, uh, scheduled for October, because we're less than a year away, and uh, David Eby's in pretty good shape right now with the divisions between the Conservatives and the BC United. Whether that remains... Um, is an open question. I, I don't know if the conservatives can maintain their momentum, and if they falter, um, perhaps Kevin Falcon can get some new life. But but that name change that he did, 
and then his decision to kick John John Rustad out of caucus, which led to the formation of the BC or the BC Conservatives to have a legislature presence, um, could prove catastrophic for him. But I think also David Eby's benefiting from one of the things I think with millennials is they're very loyal to one another as a generation in ways that I'm not sure we see the same kind of solidarity among baby boomers or, 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 um, other generations. So, so, and I'm wondering if David Eby might benefit from that, that younger voters might look at him and say, I can relate to him. He's got a couple of young kids, a third one on the way. Um, and and he doesn't come across as being terribly ideological. Uh, he's he's quite green, and whether that might serve him well with millennial voters, and because there are so many of them, is that going to be enough to tip the balance? The challenge he faces is that older voters tend to turn out in greater percentages, but they're divided um, between NDP and. BC United. So if we see the um, NDP really focusing on the millennial voters, and I think Robbie Callan is another key player in all of this, along with some of the other younger cabinet ministers, Nikki Sharma, that is this a government for millennials? And what is Kevin Falcon going to do to counter it with an, kind of an aging caucus? And I don't see... We haven't seen any real stars emerge, young stars, on the BC United ticket. And as long as they're faring poorly in the polls, it's going to be harder to recruit those stars. So I think Kevin Falcon has a real uphill challenge. And do you think also the rebranding of the BC Liberals, now BC United, do you think that's going to hurt them? Yes, I I think it will. I think um, Jez Johal was one who was very critical of it because he thought, the BC Liberal brand was helpful with uh, diverse communities in Metro Vancouver where they needed votes. And uh, even if people are mistaking it for federal liberal or BC liberal, <laughs> that that they could uh, benefit from that. Um, but I think Kevin Falcon wanted to have this, create this big tent and called it BC United. Some people are joking that the name is like a soccer franchise. Um, <laughs> but, well, you know, there's, there's still 10 months to go until the election. A lot can change. Um, politics, uh, things can be very volatile. One mistake or a few missteps can create all sorts of problems. So so there's, there's still a lot of time. There's also a lot of frustration with incumbents. And we saw that in the municipal elections where a lot of the mayors, more mayors were thrown out of office than at any time in my recent memory. And uh, we can see it federally where the Conservatives are, are going quite strong against the Liberals. But I don't get the sense that there's that same mood to throw the NDP out that we saw at the municipal level and we're seeing at the federal level. Yeah, so a lot of elections to watch out for, Charlie. And another story I want to talk to you about, Charlie, and I think, you know, climate change, of course, is a big topic. It is something that we're dealing with all around the world. And here locally, our ski resorts really are dealing with low levels of snow. I mean, I'm happy to look at the forecast. It seems like this week there's going to be snow up in the mountains. But what do you make of the situation that we're seeing in our ski hills here? 
Yeah, I, I think this is something that's been expected and anticipated for many, many years, where there have been um, forecasts and predictions. What's interesting about uh, Whisper, which may be more resilient just given its altitude and where it's located, but uh, the company Vale Resorts bought Whistler Blackcomb Holdings in 2016 for $1.39 billion. And in a way, the American ski hills are under just as much, if not more, threat than uh, the Canadian. So this was a move, I think, by Vale to try to uh, you know, diversify their holdings and, and offer them some climate resilience. But... The challenge, I think, is is also water sources to make snow are, are limited in some places, like like California, and the um, and here in in Metro Vancouver, where you've got Seymour and and Cypress, which are not at the altitude of Whistler or, or Sun Peaks, um, but they're they're quite vulnerable. And um, Whistler, Cypress is interesting too because. It's on leased provincial land in Cypress Provincial Park. So, so if the Cypress operation doesn't do well or runs into serious trouble, that actually affects the, the BC government's bottom line as well. There have been projections. Um, there was a climate scientist at UBC Okanagan who suggested the coastal mountains like Mount Washington, Cypress Bowl, Grouse Mountain, Mount Seymour, and Helmlock would face uh, steep declines in snowfall by mid-century. We're not there yet, but some of the, um, the, the, the warming is accelerating at a greater degree than uh, people anticipated a few years ago, or at least it's the worst-case scenario. Um, the BC interior is going to face even more warming than the coastal regions, but... Uh, you know, I think Big White, for instance, will will probably be fine, at least in the short to medium term. But it's a real problem. That's a long answer for you, <laughs> And I, I'm sure, Charlie, we're, we're going to talk about this again, but it is definitely concerning to see something like this. I mean, do you remember back in 2010 when we had the Winter Olympics? And back oh, then, yeah. we, you remember we didn't have enough snow, and that was like 10-plus years ago. Yeah, and they were just bringing snow by the truckload, you know, up to up to Cyprus, and and now you've got the First Nations um, that were trying to put together an Olympic bid. The NDP government didn't get behind it, right. um, the, a new Olympic bid. But the uh, BC Liberals or BC United now were strongly supportive of that, and and this could emerge as an issue in the election, and it's whether there's any chance of, of Vancouver and Whistler hosting another Olympics in 2030 or something like that, is, um, it's going to be a challenge. Oh, it, it certainly is. So let's see what happens there. Now, Charlie, finally, I want to talk about a piece in Vancouver that you wrote about regarding the Push Festival. It seems like a very interesting story. Can you tell us about this play? Yeah, it, it's actually a dance performance It's called by Neishi Wang and, and Jean Abreu, and it's called Deciphers. And it's kind of, both of them are, are immigrants to their respective countries. So, so Nishi Wang moved from China to Toronto when he was 16 years old. 
Jean Abreu moved from Brazil to London when he was a preteen, like 12 or 13. And both of them experienced that disequilibrium and isolation of immigration, especially when you don't speak the language very well. So they would do things like watch how people moved. And um, when I interviewed them, uh, Neshu was telling me he would he would study people's movement to try to understand meaning. He'd read the intention, the body distance, the tone, the Canadian way of laughing, the Canadian way of keeping distance. And, and both of them overcame their language challenges and learned English reasonably well and became very successful choreographers. And then they came to this conclusion. We had shared histories in a way in that both were from smaller communities in their countries then moved to the big communities, like in, in Neshi's case it was Beijing, in Jean's case it was Rio de Janeiro, and then they moved to western, large western cities. And so what they want to show in this performance, they're using spoken word as well, so Neshi will be speaking in Mandarin and Jean will be speaking in Portuguese and um, conveying the... Uh, confusion that people here feel <coughs> in that kind of circumstance. Excuse me, I've got a cough here. Medicare. That's okay, Charlie. I can relate. I know how it goes. But that sounds like a really wonderful thing for people to check out. That is part of the PUSH Festival. Charlie, thank you so, so much for your time. We really appreciate it. You take care. Okay, thanks, Medicare. Bye. Bye.